Perfect. Hello, everyone. This is Rachel Vattenstall from the Life Science Tools and Diagnostics team. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, so I'm joined with the Agilent team, Mike McMullen, CEO. Um, standard with your other sessions that you've been attending today, we'll kick it off with a 20-minute presentation by the company, and then we will shift to Q&A. Um, during Q&A, if you're joining via webcast, you can feel free to submit a question via the Q&A function. Um, and for those of us in person, feel free to raise your hand, and we have mic runners throughout the room that can hand a microphone off to you. So with that, well, thank you, Rachel. Uh, I must say, as I mentioned earlier, it's just uh, great to be here, and must be it's great to be back in a space environment at, here at uh, J.P. Morgan. So, thanks for joining in today. Um, there's three parts to my talk today. Uh, first of all, I'm going to talk to you an overview of Agilent, um, who we are, what we've been doing in terms of shareholder value creation. Then we're going to move forward and talk about where are we going to make sure that we can continue to perform at a high level in 2023 after the Agilent team delivered an excellent 2022. And then I'll close with uh, what you can expect from Agilent in FY23. But first, for your reading pleasure, our safe harbor statement. Okay, with that, I want to move on to who is Agilent. We're a $6.8 billion company um, with the unsurpassed scale, a leading partner with unsurpassed capabilities and scale across the world's 265,000 uh, laboratories. Um, I would also say we've been working really hard to change the overall mix of the company's business. Uh, you notice we've highlighted here the move to almost 59% of our revenues today come from high-growth pharma, these, connect, these connected high-growth areas of pharma, clinical diagnostics, uh, and life sciences research. Um, if you had a chance to listen to me talk last year in our virtual format, I talked to you about, you know, we had a winning strategy as Agilent team. The Agilent team was performing at a very high level, and we were, we were going to deliver. And that's exactly what we did in 2022. So we grew 12% core in 2022 on top of 15% of the prior year. Um, margins up 160 basis points in an inflationary environment that none of us have seen for, for a number of decades. And then our earnings per share growth continues to accelerate. Uh, we did 20% growth uh, this year on top of 32 the prior year. So we're not at all satisfied. We continue to push ourselves. We're going to continue to drive shareholder value creation as we move forward. In fact, in terms of uh, shareholder value creation, um, I want to remind you of what is our model here at Agilent. Um, I stood in front of this group uh, when I first became CEO uh, back in the 2015, and I described our shareholder value creation model at the time, which was to drive above market growth, which is to have a continued expansion of the operating margin, and deploy capital in a balanced way. That's been our model that's been intact for two, since 2015. And what can you expect from that model? What we, what we shared uh, at our most recent uh, investor and analyst day back in, I guess, it was December of 2020, right, Bob? Um, above market growth, we think we'll do 5 to 7% core as a company, uh, continue to expand operating margins. I'm sure we'll get into some of those details in Q&A of 50 to 100 basis points per year and continue to use uh, the strong uh, Agilent balance sheet to deploy capital in a balanced manner, whereas that all lead to double-digit EPS growth. And you can see by our resolve for the last two years, um, we're delivering on this uh, commitment here. And as I show you the, the resolve for the last five years, you'll see that it's been a continuous story of delivering on this model. In fact, these aren't just some theoretical business model uh, that we talk about with investors. This is what drives the Agilent team. And what I would share, say with you is that if you look at the growth rate of this company uh, pre-2015, which I called the creation of the new Agilent after the, uh, our spinoff of our electronic measurement business and becoming a full-focused uh, company on life science and diagnostics, our growth rate has accelerated. 
So not only are our growth rate doubled, but you'll see in the last few years it actually has been accelerating with 15% core in 21, uh, 12% core uh, last year. I can remember uh, being in front of a group like this uh, five or six years ago talking about operating margin expansion. Could you ever get to 22% operating profit? Well, we've blown right through that. Um, margins are up 800 basis points um, since uh, 2015. And, and last year, as I mentioned earlier, we delivered 160 uh, points of improvement in an inflationary environment. Where does this all go to? Again, this idea of superior earnings growth, 17% CAGR through the last five years, uh, 32 in 21 and 20 uh, uh, in the past year, going from a buck 74 to a 522 and F522. So again, um, we've lined up our compensation systems. This is how we focus the entire company on this model. So it's more than a theory. Um, this is what we do at Agilent. I want to dig in a little bit deeper about the comments on the balanced capital deployment. So what do I mean by that? So we've got this great balance sheet. So how are we going to use it? So the way we're going to use this balance sheet is to drive investments for growth as a top priority. So let me start to the far right. So um, this includes organic investments of CapEx. Uh, up through 2015, uh, we've invested about a billion three uh, in CapEx, primarily to do the first phase of growth for our NASD business, but also to expand production capacity across other parts of Agile's portfolio. Now, I hope you had a chance to catch our press release uh, that went out yesterday where we announced another $725 million on top of this as we continue to expand our NESD business. And I'll be going to dig deeper uh, about that, our plans there later on in my, in my comments this morning. And then we've also deployed over $3 billion uh, in capital for, for M&A. And we're really targeting great companies in fast-growing end markets. And um, we're really happy with our success to date. In fact, over 8% of Agilent's revenues today have come through acquired companies. And you're hearing me talk a lot about today this build-and-buy growth strategy that Agile has. You know, the build our internal organic investments. That NESD investment is one example of that. And then the buy, obviously, is what we've been doing with the M&A side of our, of our, our activities. Um, while returning capital to shareholders. So um, during the last uh, five-plus years, we've uh, paid out uh, $1.6 billion in dividends. I think this is actually an underappreciated aspect of Agilent's capital deployment um, approach, which is a growing cash dividend uh, that we've been able to do every year since 2015. And then share repurchases. Um, we have uh, brought back $4.4 billion worth of shares since 2015, over $1.1 billion in 22. And you may have seen a recent press release where we've been authorized by the board for another $2 billion, a realization of our share repurchase for another $2 billion. So, again, what you're hearing is consistency of execution of what we already called our balanced capital deployment. Okay. You know, it's not just about the numbers at Agilent, although we're very proud of the results we're delivering for our shareholders. We also have a role to play in society. Um, and uh, I'd like to talk to you about our ESG initiatives, but I'm going to focus today on sustainability, both in terms of what we're doing relative to our own operations, but also how we're helping our customers. So let's first of all talk about sustainability in our own operation at Agilent. So um, we're committed to net zero emissions by 2015. Um, at Agilent, though, there are real plans to get there. This is not a, a slogan or some kind of statement. It's real at Agilent. So we have uh, multi-year plans that get us there. And, in fact, since 2014, our, our carbon emissions are down 34%. Uh, but it's not about just what we can do with our own operations. How can we help our customers? So you think about um, when you talk to our customers, they're really engaged in trying to meet their sustainability goals, and Agile has a role here to play. Think about the engineering prowess we have in terms of how we design our instrumentation. 
it's much smaller. It uses lots, lots less energy, and a lot less waste is, is generated. So our engineering for sustainability uh, is really a key part of what we do in terms of our NPI activities. We have an in industry-unique refurbished business unit, which is basically a, a certified Agilent pre-owned. So instruments aren't getting disposed out somewhere in some you know, um, dump site. They're actually being recycled and resold in the marketplace for other, other customers. And, and our efforts here have been actually recognized by the uh, My Green Lab, and we have Echo product labels. Um, you also may know that uh, a energy consumption in, in a lab per square foot is right up there with what you see in hospitals and large commercial organizations. So our customers are very concerned about the energy consumption that happens in their laboratories. And this is where our cross-lab connect organization go in, where we can go in and really offer them advice in terms of how they can reduce uh, their energy consumption. So I'm, I'm, as proud as we are about the financial results we're, we're delivering, we have a real role here to play in making the world a better place, and we're committed to doing that, both in terms of our own internal operations, but also what we do for customers. And as you might imagine, there is a little bit of a commercial story on the, the right-hand side as well as we help uh, our customers with their sustainability goals. Okay, enough about the history in the past. Let's look forward. Um, the point I'm going to drive home today is Agilent is a diversified and resilient business with multiple growth drivers. So what's behind that statement? Let me take you through that. So I think, first of all, it starts with the market. And specifically, where do you want to focus your company's investments? So a number of years ago, we decided that the priority investments, we were going to invest at a higher proportion of our investment dollars into the fast-growing pharma and clinical diagnostic marketplace, while at the same point in time taking advantage of secular growth drivers in applied markets. So our model is we can develop core technology and applicate those across multiple end markets. And I think as, you, as I walk you through our storyboard in terms of our, our, our portfolio, you can see why we've gotten this more diversified, resilient business. So building a more resilient business, um, this doesn't happen overnight. Uh, it requires a focused set of efforts over, over the years. And what I wanted to talk to you today was how have we built – um, resiliency at Agile, and how we continue to build resiliency in terms of our revenue profile. First of all, it starts back when we spun off, a high, at that time, a very highly cyclical electronic measurement business. That's when we formed the new Agilent. We then made a big bet on, on uh, services and consumables, our cross-lab strategy. We entered the clinical market and diagnostics market, and as we'll hear later, we've been investing very heavily in biopharma APIs. This is our strategic intent around how to build um, resiliency. So how's it working out so far? <laughs> so you go back to 2008, 2009, uh, we were in, in a, a global um, recession. Uh, I think the global GDP was down 1.3%. Um, Agilent, uh, restated Agilent would have been, been down about 2 um, If you look at what the pandemic happened, caused in terms of 2020, uh, global GDP was down 3.3%. Agilent actually grew 1%. So even in the face of a pandemic-induced uh, uh, global recession, Agilent has found ways to grow. And you can see it on the right-hand side here how significantly changed our revenue mix is from back in 2008, 16% was recurring revenue. Now almost 60% of our business is recurring revenue. So these are real, real significant changes in terms of the portfolio of our business. But it, it came through a series of focused strategies that we had started a number of years ago. Um, let's talk about one aspect of that resilience of business. So I mentioned earlier we made a big bet on the services business uh, back in 2015 with the formation of our Agilent Cross Lab group. 
Uh, the results speak for themselves in terms of uh, how we've been delivering here. Um, uh, the business is now at $1.5 billion of, of business. I point out that 60% of those revenues actually come from annual or multi-year service agreements, so a high-level predictability about the revenue occurring. Uh, we have built a best-in-class customer service organization, second to none, um, and uh, we also tie this very closely to our consumables business. You'll hear us talk a lot about connect rates, uh, which is of the Aslan install base, how much of, uh, how much of their consumables and services are coming from Aslan. And we, we hit a new milestone um, uh, this last, last quarter, over 30%. We think got a lot more headroom uh, in front of us, but you can see how the growth rate has accelerated for the first few years from 15 to 20, about 8%. Over the last three years, it's accelerated to um, 11% for our, in terms of our top-line growth. Now, I'm arguably biased, but I think high growth, high margin, uh, high driver of customer satisfaction. There's a lot to like here with the Agilent uh, services business. I talked earlier about, you know, the bets we make in terms of really investing for in faster-growing uh, segments of the market. So a number of years ago, we said biopharma is a place we're going. Um, and now through a series of focused investments and success in the marketplace, it now represents almost 39% of, of Aslan's total uh, pharma business. And you can see how the business has grown. Uh, we were less than $100 million in 2015. Uh, we were knocking on the door of a billion. Uh, I think this chart is a billion. I think the actual number is 989 but I rounded up for a billion for this presentation. Um, but we've been driving a really straightforward strategy, which is to leverage our positions across the biopharma value chain to expand our offerings. So um, we've been leading, we've provided leading analytical solutions in and out of the lab, uh, building our kind of our strong instrument heritage here. We're a leader in biopharma services for therapy selection. This is where a whole companion diagnostic business comes in. Market leadership in RNA-based uh, APIs and growing CRISPR position. We're going to dig into that a little bit deeper. And then uh, also we'll talk about our cell analysis business we built here as well, all about providing the capabilities across the whole value chain for our biopharma customers. So the focus investments are paying off, and I would tell you we're not done yet. We think there's a lot of uh, growth still in front of us in the biopharma space. So I've been hitting at this already, but, uh, you know, we have a leadership position today in the therapeutic uh, oligonucleotide uh, marketplace, particularly, uh, specifically siRNA. Uh, this is what we re uh, refer to as our NASD business. Um, this is a large market, already a billion-dollar uh, TAM, growing 20%. We've become the market leader in this business. Um, in 2022, delivered almost $300 million of revenue, high margin, growing 29%. Why are we winning? We have high-quality oligo API materials. I think it really kind of also the key point of the capabilities we have as a team, superior customer service. We are known in the industry as the company to work with. Um, we have a solid and diversified uh, client portfolio, and I mentioned earlier this deep technical acumen, and we're willing to invest. Uh, right now we have uh, what we call our Train B, which is the new production line that's targeted to come on, online in 2023. We're targeting that mid-year of next year. In addition, on top of that $300 million, that will add another $150 million of annual uh, capacity of, of revenue. Uh, and, uh, again, we're looking we're pretty confident about how things are going to happen for us in 23 relative to Train B. And for the future, we're not done yet. Uh, if you ever have heard me talk before about this business, I've said, hey, there's more letters in the alphabet than A and B. Uh, in fact, we uh, just announced yesterday in a press release that um, we're going to further expand that business. Uh, we're on the road to uh, a $1 billion revenue business here as we invest uh, $725 million in what we refer to internally as train C and D, um, which is going to give us 
additional capacity on siRNA, but also allows the antisense and more CRISPR guide RNA material. So we're very excited about this. This will actually double the revenues of NASD. Uh, and uh, back to the sustainability story, our new design also incorporates a lot of sustainability capabilities to really uh, limit the impact uh, on, on, on water usage and, and waste production. So very exciting time for us, a great business for us, and highly connected also to our genomics uh, research business as well. So very excited about our ability to be on the road to a $1 billion in revenue. We, we crossed over $300 million, uh, in 22, and uh, we have more capacity coming on 23, and this will start coming online around uh, 26 for us. So again, pointing to the future of strong growth in biopharma. The cell analysis side of our business, uh, we, the title here is the buy side is working. This is a reminder. Uh, what's driving this marketplace is things like immunology, immunology, immunotherapy investments, cell and gene therapy, a really nice end markets through a series of acquisitions. We've built up a $400 million revenue business, growing 15% since FY20 on an annual basis. This will be an area of continued priority of investment for us as we move forward. And again, I think it really shows you the power of Agilent's business model, which is we can both build in terms of internal investments that I just shared with you on NASD, but also buy and build some really nice new businesses for our shareholders and customers. Remember, I said it's all about the markets. I said we've been really focusing on the higher growth pharma markets and, and diagnostics markets. But I also talked to you about the secular trends that are going on in this space. There's two that I really like to highlight here, which is what's happening in advanced materials. This is a big market, a billion and a half dollars. We are the undisputed leader in this space of advanced materials. Two secular trends I'd focus on here. I picked up a few headlines from the newspapers here, but uh, as you know, there's a lot of unsuring going on relative to semiconductors. Um, and as, as COVID-19 kind of highlighted the world how concentrated the supply of chips was in particular parts of the world, you see massive investments, government-supported investments happening right now to build new fabs um, in the United States, Europe, and other parts of the world. So we're going to benefit by that um, secular driver that's happening right now. And I think we all know there's a, a revolution going on in the electronic uh, vehicle side, electric vehicle side of the automobile industry. The demand for batteries is exploding right now. Uh, and this is where Asla plays in the space, already from the actual mining of the raw materials that actually goes into the production of batteries, but also all through the value chain in terms of development, production, and QAQC. So, um, again, this is a great example of our leveraging core technologies in, in markets that are growing, growing rapidly. So uh, we will get the outsized uh, level of growth here relative to our peers. You know, we are the undisputed leader uh, in this space. And then uh, another secular driver I point to uh, in the applied markets relates to the environmental testing area. You may be familiar with uh, an emerging public health uh, challenge, which is these so-called forever chemicals, which are everywhere and they are forever. <laughs> um, and I think there's a growing recognition that this has uh, health consequences. Uh, you've seen a number of companies announce their, their discontinuance of production of, of forever chemicals. And why is that important for this conversation today? Um, there's increasing levels of research and regulation happening in this space to uh, water ter, uh, monitor water, test for water, and other types of, of uh, contaminants, if you will, out there. And this is where Agile comes as leader in this space with our configured system to allow our customers to, to work on PFAS. This initiative has really started initially in the United States. Uh, it's grown in Europe, and we expect uh, you know, China and Japan also to follow suit with more regulation, create new opportunities for, for the company. So I just highlight these last three months just to show you about the secular drive that happened in our applied markets uh, business. 
So I, in my opening comments, I said, what can you expect from uh, Ashland in 2023? Just a reminder of the guidance that we shared at our last earnings call. For, for the full year, we're expecting revenues of 6.9 to $7 billion. That would be core revenue growth of 5 to 6.5%, EPS of 561 to 569. And then for Q1, you actually see our, our core revenue growth is, is a guided at a higher rate. Uh, 1.68 billion to 1.7 billion in terms of dollars for for Q1 with core revenue of 6.8% to 8%, uh, and the EPS of buck 29 to a dollar 31. So I went through the numbers pretty quickly. I want to get to Q&A, but I'm, I'm assuming uh, you've got these already in your notes. But I just want to remind you what our guidance was in in the in the last uh, in our last call. I'm going to close uh, with a few key takeaways that I really hope came through in my conversation with you this morning. Agilent has a diversified and resilient business. We've got multiple growth drivers in fast-growing markets, and it's being driven by this Agilent team, which is, is focused on our customers. And I think you saw in the numbers, we have a proven track record of success, and I would argue unmatched execution capabilities. Um, what you can expect for us in the future is we will continue to prioritize investments for growth, expand our base of recurring revenue, and anticipate and react quickly to changing conditions to deliver at a high level. So, again, thank you for uh, joining us today. And, Rachel, I think we're going into Q&A. I think Bob's going to join us as well. So, yes, we're shifting to the Q&A portion. As a reminder, if you do have a question, please raise your hand, and then we'll have a mic runner um, hand you the microphone. So thank you guys again for joining us. I figured, I figured just to kick it off, um, cyclical concerns. You highlighted some of the more nascent markets today, like battery testing, PFAS, um, also some of the, you know, more semiconductor testing as well. But can you talk about how the portfolio has really shifted since 2008, and what is the resiliency of your portfolio today? Um, so, you know, how much would you view as your portfolio tied to those true, more cyclical end markets like energy? Yeah, Rachel, it's great to have that first question because you hadn't seen my deck before you prepared those questions. But uh, hopefully what came through on uh, a couple of key points I tried to make earlier, which is, first of all, the big mix of recurring revenue. So we've gone from 16 to 58% of our business is now recurring revenue. Uh, we now have a very large... Uh, services business, we have a diagnostics business, we have an API business, and these tend to be uh, fairly insulated relative to uh, global GDP uh, pressures. And then the big battle pharma for us as well. Yeah, and uh, I, I think when you when you look at pharma, you know that uh, that business is now almost 40% of the the total revenue uh, back. That that's up from 10 to 15% probably back in 2015. So you've got much more uh, strong growth uh, in. Uh, more resilient end markets, and then coupled with that, even within the CAM and advanced materials area, that energy that you just talked about at one point in time back in 2015, I was about 30% of that business. It's less than it's about 10% now, and uh, with these secular drivers that we're yeah, talking about. Yeah, and Bob, I think uh, probably the energy segment is less than 2% of Agilent's total revenues, uh, and that's why we actually changed the name of the segment to be uh, chemicals and advanced materials, more reflective of what's really going on there. Yeah, perfect. Maybe as you know, digging deeper into some of those more new markets like the batteries and semiconductors, can you just talk about what gives you confidence that these are going to be more resilient heading into a recession? We haven't really seen those markets be tested yet. So what's your visibility into the growth there longer term? Yeah, so you can imagine something like bringing on a fab is a multi-year investment, but the, the big difference is there's government funding and public support for these initiatives. So it's now viewed as a, uh, a matter of security and national security in terms of where we want to have chips manufactured. We haven't seen 
this level of government support in the private sector in the United States or Europe since I've been in this role. So the, I, think these, I think you've got a level of, of, of funding that's coming from not only the private space but also the public sector space. And then on, on the electric, electric vehicles, and Bob and I were talking about this uh, this morning, I mean, all the major automobile manufacturers have major initiatives in, the, in this area. Uh, they're directly funding a lot of the research. We're also seeing money coming in from, again, government sources. So I think it's this part of this play here is not just the private sector supporting these investments, but they're also with the government support. Um, so shifting over to instruments, mm -hmm. have to ask a few on instruments here. Oh, we haven't heard um, about this one Yeah, not <laughs> once, I'm sure. Um, so can you just talk about how much do you think is, you know, either an underlying market acceleration and instrument growth versus agilent share gains? Um, and then also, how are you thinking about this instrument replacement cycle and some of the growth being sustainable going forward? Do you think that we're going to kind of have a reset given the tough comps? Or how are you thinking about instruments heading into 23? Yeah, sure, Rachel. I think Bob and I would tag team on this. First of all, we're just delighted uh, with the performance over the last two years of our LSAG business, where it was housed our analytical instrumentation business. And if you heard me talk before, I've, I've, I've quoted my Danish colleagues and say our market share results have been, you know, green, green as a Danish forest. So we've been actually picking up share across our core platforms. But I think part of the big story here is there's been a lot of, of demand. Um, and I would submit that in certain segments there's been an accelerated replacement cycle going on. Um, uh, in particular, I've been on record talking about the small molecule uh, segment of pharma, uh, uh, which really, in our, from our assessment, delayed uh, investments in 2018 and 2019 was sort of in a catch-up mode. So we, we expect that to uh, move towards the mean as we go into 23, and that's how we set up our guide. Um, but we also think other parts of the instrumentation portfolio um, are, are driven by secular demand. Yeah, some of the ones that we just talked about, certainly in, in the, um, the uh, chemicals and advanced materials, we think are secular drivers. And then I think within that pharma business, we still do believe that biopharma is a faster-growing end market than it was going into COVID. Mm -hmm. And so we still see expansionary opportunities there um, in, uh, in the instrumentation they're driven by the science, and uh, we're seeing that with our customers. That's about 39% of the overall pharma businesses. Mike just talked about a combination of both instrumentation and, and services, and I think what's important here is it's really a workflow play. It's not just instrumentation. It's also the services and the applications, and that's a, one of the biggest areas of investment that we've been making in R&D, and we're seeing it in the results. Yeah, yeah and Rachel, I'd maybe drive – uh, draw a connection here back to our ACG services business. So actually we're going to get delayed gratification because we've, we've uh, placed so many instrumentation, uh, instruments over the last two years and many of them have started to come off warranty as we go into 23. So that will be a, another driver for us in terms of, of, uh, of growth and services. And as Bob just mentioned, you know, um, back to this resiliency question, I forgot to mention this, but we've had this workflow strategy. So as you sell uh, a workflow around the instrumentation, you're often into a situation where for the next seven to ten years you have a, a current revenue stream with consumables and service relative to that workflow. Helpful. Um, and so then maybe just looking at your guidance for the fiscal year 23, um, you've mentioned how you have really strong visibility into the first half of the year. You guided to five to six and a half percent core growth off of a stellar fiscal 22. Um, so can you talk about the implied guidance, you know, more towards the back half of the year? Is that more, you know, are you seeing some type of slowdown that could suggest that in the back half? 
or is it really just out of an abundance of caution and conservatism given this point? And then, you know, what level of visibility would you need to see to be comfortable with lifting that guide throughout the year? Yeah, so first of all, thanks for the characterization of 2020 to a stellar. So well, I'll, I'll take that uh, on behalf of the Agilent team. Um, the way we set up the guide was we have really good visibility in the next three to six months. Uh, we know what's in our in our order backlog, and we know what's in our funnel. So, Because I think that's really, if you think, look at Agilent's businesses, keep in mind that we're really talking about the CapEx instrument piece uh, portion of the business. And we have really good visibility the next three to six months about how that's going to shape out. As we set up the guide for, for the second half, uh, for the full year, we said, we really don't know what's going to happen. It's not, it's not a prediction. It's just a, a measure of, if you will, can, we, can I use the word prudent? Uh, in terms of our guide setup, which is, you know, we really don't know how the, the back half of, of the year is going to look like. What I can tell you is through counter 2022, as we finished off our order book, orders came in as expected for, for the full calendar year. So, Bob, what else? Yeah, yeah I, I, you, you characterize it well, Mike. I think, uh, you know, as we look through, you know, Q, Q1 and Q2, we'll have more visibility, obviously, into the in, into the funnel, and, and obviously, we're also going up against tougher comps in the back half of the year, um, so that does play into it. But I think it is uh, kind of a wait and see. We're not yeah. seeing anything in the market that would suggest they mm -hmm. slow down yeah. in the back half, but we're you know we're a uh, few weeks in uh, into the calendar year here, a few months into our our fiscal year, and, and we'll know a lot more um, in a, in a couple of quarters. Yep. Um, then shifting over to China. So obviously sure. we've had, you know, some concerning headlines coming out of China with the recent outbreaks there. So can you talk about what you guys are seeing in the conversations that you're having with your customers in that region? Also, Lunar New Year coming up. And then um, finally, you've flagged some potential stimulus in China. So NetNet, kind of walk us through what you're seeing in that market. And is there any upside or downside risk to that high single digits you've laid out in China for 23? Yeah, so maybe I just remind the audience, so, you know, how things worked out in 22 for Agilent. So there's a lot of variation by, by quarters as uh, as we were experiencing government mandate they had to shut down to certain parts of the country but for the year we actually delivered 18 percent uh, growth for, for China so our business in China was very strong uh, and we have a great team there I think we guide the high singles uh, for, for the year we uh, we think that the, the the recent change in the China government policy is a net positive for 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 our business there because we will have it's situations where our workforce may be affected with, with COVID uh, and maybe uh, um, it won't be able to work for a period of time, but we're not dealing with government-mandated restrictions. Um, and uh, so we think it's overall net positive. It's going to take a little while to kind of work through some initial disruptions as, as the well-publicized waves have uh, been gone through uh, different parts of China. We're experiencing it right now, and we find we've gotten pretty good about navigating um, our, our workforce and being able to work from home and avoid uh, situations where, you know, people can't work all the time. Uh, the one variation, obviously, would be whether or not if customers' labs have to be shut down for a period of time. Uh, Lunar New Year, I would just say, um, you know, we're <laughs> – I was talking earlier this morning with one of our investors, and I, I love to not talk about Lunar New Year, but it always seems to be the case. Uh, so for Aslant, uh, this year actually will lead to a condensed revenue uh, cycle in, in China. So um, we'll be fine for the first – in Q1. So don't be spooked by Q1 numbers. It's all assumed in our guide that we'll have a less a week or so less of revenue. Yeah, I, I would say, Rachel, you know, we're positive on China. Yeah, yeah. And oh, yeah. Uh, we think that that business uh, is going to be the fastest-growing region uh, coming into into this year, off the fast-growing last year. The stimulus that you talked about, um, you know, I think will find its way much faster than uh, stimulus finds its way in, in Europe and in, uh, in the yeah. U.S. into uh, key strategic industries yeah, yeah. which we support, whether yeah. that be semiconductor, 
bioprocessing um, and um, even the energy areas, I think that those are critical strategic areas that are part of their five-year plan. Mm -hmm. uh, removing the uncertainty of the overhang around shutdowns and so forth and being able to manage that internally, I think, is a – there will be disruption, uh, I think, short-term perhaps, but it's much more manageable than all of a sudden government-mandated mm -hmm. shutdowns mm -hmm. where you can't go to the factory. Yeah. And our, 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 our capabilities are smack dab in terms of the priorities that the Chinese government has set for, for the country. So, as Bob mentioned, we're very positive on China. Perfect. Um, shifting over to NASD then. So, train CND, great to hear about that announcement this week. Um, so, you said that cost will be estimated $725 million, set to open in 2026 and 2027. So, for starters, how should we think about the pacing of that investment over that time frame? And then on the demand side, can you talk through some of the levers there that gives you confidence that you're going to be able to warrant, you know, enough de demand to really double the capacity there? Yeah, Bob, you want to take the first piece? And, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, as you can imagine, we've done a, a lot of work um, trying to, to quantify that and, and looking with our existing customers and looking at the, the clinical trial demand of not only our existing customers but also other opportunities and feel very confident. And one of the reasons that we feel confident is if you look at the therapeutic areas that are being targeted for uh, oligonucleotide uh, therapeutics or siRNA, they're broader and broader patient mm -hmm. populations, so more and more patients. And we're just seeing that with uh, some of the products that we have on market uh, in, in partnership with our partners. And so we've, we're looking at that. We feel very confident about uh, that. We already have uh, Train B already orders in hand. And uh, when we look into the future, not only looking at our existing customers, but the number of new therapeutic areas that are being focused on, we feel very confident that there will be enough uh, demand out there to, to satisfy the capacity that we have. Yeah, I wanted Bob to speak to it because uh, it's not just me that shares the excitement around this business. And Bob, maybe you can talk a little about the pacing of how the yeah, cap so actually think, deployed. Yeah, so we think over. about this pacing. Yeah. Um, you know, we're as a reminder to what Mike just talked about, we're scheduled to have Train B, which is $150 million of revenue opportunity coming online uh, mid this year. Um, we expect that to be actually fully ramped up by the end of our fiscal year on an on a ongoing basis. So um, that'll be a nice 23. We're expecting double-digit growth for that business and then going into 24 as well. And then from a CapEx perspective, that hasn't been built into the $300 million that we had built in roughly 100 to 150 million dollars in addition this year and then more in 24 and then as we build the yeah. factory because yeah. this will be a new uh, new shell yeah. in, in Frederick um, then we'll start bringing that online in, in 26 and, and as I mentioned in my presentation we have a, a large and diversified customer base so we have good line of sight to demand even out to 26 and 27 so it's not like we're trying to build something and go look for the business so we, we know this is gonna be there Perfect, helpful. Um, then during your comments earlier, you mentioned some of the small molecule and the robust growth mm -hmm. there. It grew 21% in fiscal 4Q. You know, really strong numbers for small molecule. Yeah. We haven't seen that in a long time. So can you walk through what's really driving some of that acceleration in small molecule? You mentioned some of the replacement cycle, but just dig deeper into that. How resilient is this growth, and at what point should we kind of see it reset here? Yeah, we're, we're assuming it's going to reset in 23. Mm -hmm. um, and we're just delighted with the growth that we've seen well, that's several quarters in small molecule. For the most part, this is a more mature market in, in U.S. and Europe. Uh, and our thesis has, is that um, there was a delayed uh, reinvestment in this area, 2018, 2019. You may recall some of our earnings calls. We're actually talking about that. Um, China's always been in expansionary mode, so we'll, we'll, we expect that to continue. But uh, we think over time you'll start to see a tapering down of, of, uh, of the um, uh, replacement cycle in liquid chromatography. 
But again, keep in mind, it's still an attractive market, even when it's, it's they're going to still invest, but it'll probably be like five or six percent growth rate as opposed to you know twenty plus. Um, so, also in terms of announcements, you announced a partnership with Acquia last week. So, I was just wondering if you could dig into that. Why was Acquia the right partner to um, partner with from a technology perspective? And then, more generally, you know, why do you view spatial as an attractive market? And is it safe to see that Absolute could do more in that area going forward? Yeah, so uh, we're delighted with the, uh, the, with the partnership we announced uh, earlier this week. Um, and uh, we know Acquia quite well. And for a period of time, we actually were directly invested in the company. So, we're a big believer in their technology, their capabilities, uh, and, and where things can go on the spatial front. Um, and we saw this as a natural extension of, real, if you say, a real recognition of the strength of our Omnis sustaining platform. So we thought this was a great way for us to participate uh, in this space um, with, uh, with Acquia. It's non-exclusive, um, um, and uh, we think there's more that can happen in the space from Agilent. Um, PFAS testing, that's an area that you and some of your peers have started to talk about much more meaningfully mm-hmm. recently. Um, so can you talk about, you know, you highlighted some of the regulation here today, but what should we look for going forward? Are there any other regulations coming down the pipe on PFAS, and how meaningful of a market can that be? Yeah, I think you can expect to see more regulations. Um, and a lot of it's being driven in the United States at the state level. I think you'll start to see uh, things happen at the national level. We expect the same thing to happen in Europe uh, as well as China uh, and, and, and Japan. Uh, so uh, this is a $200, $200 million market we think is growing greater than 10%. We expect that growth rate to continue for a number of years. Um, and then shifting over to M&A, you guys have noted that you're willing to do, you know, maybe a larger deal here. You also spoke recently and said maybe looking at a public company. So can you just dive a little bit deeper into that? What areas of the portfolio do you think yeah. would be best? There's obviously been a lot of beat-up names in our sector as well. Um, so, you know, what areas are you really looking at from M&A? Yeah, by the way, our recent comments aren't anything new. It's just a restatement of, of what we've always said, which is um, we have the ability to uh, do larger deals relative to uh, our field date was the biotech acquisition, uh, but we have really strict parameters in terms of how we think about M&A, both in terms of maintaining investment grade. Um, it's got to be accretive. It's got to be the right kind of deal that we can make it work for our, our, our customers. I mean, excuse me, our shareholders as well as customers. What I would say is, oh, I realize that this is an interesting microphone. Okay, sorry about that. Um, I think the areas that we have been in, investing in, you've seen us do deals, uh, cell analysis, genomics, uh, diagnostics, those still remain the priority areas for the company. Yeah. I think w- one of the things that we're looking at is making sure we're in markets that we know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the beauty of the end markets that we play in are, are large already. And, and, and so I think there's, there's, uh, hmm. there's a lot of opportunities and targets out there. And I think with our strong balance sheet and cash flow, um, you know, we are, uh, you know, our funnel is, is quite helpful. Yeah, and again, I keep coming back to our comments about we, we talk about our build and buy growth strategy. The buy, style, buy is all option, optionality for the company. We don't have to do deals to make our model work, but if we can find great companies, we will, we will move on them. Um, and then last question, just on leverage, you know, just given this market and what we're mm-hmm. in today, what are you willing to go to from a leverage standpoint for looking at some of these deals? Yeah, you, you know, we've, we've been on record in saying it. Um, you know, our, our goal is to make sure that we maintain investment grade. Mm-hmm. That's even more important in today's environment um, than, than uh, in the past when money was, uh, I would say, almost free. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you, where we are today, we still have plenty of leverage to, to get there. Um, and, and I think we'd be comfortable with, with several turns. Um, but, again, being um, focused on maintaining that investment grade. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And with that, we are out of time today. So thank thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, everyone.